space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek Podcast. We are in Season 2, Episode 3B, as we are coming back to the second part of Past Tense, and we're staying in the year 2024. Now, as I said before, this is in your future, so under Temporal uh, Directives, I can't actually give away too much of your future history, but as we go through, I might bring in a few historical nods that you're a bit more familiar with, so I can kind of get away with that. We begin at zero minutes and zero seconds in past tense two from Deep Space Nine. And speaking of tense, it's very tense in our scene as we've had the first part, which I think uh, set up the themes that we were going to be dealing with, this idea of broken narratives, the idea that people who are suffering are uh, a different part of society to us, that we don't have to care about them because the problems are far too big. The narratives at play uh, that uh, Cisco has been discussing, that Bashir seems utterly confused by, and that Dax is seeing the other end of. Uh, some of the other characters have also given us different perspectives as we've gone through. Some of the characters, we haven't actually learnt their names yet. Um, uh, they've gone through a whole episode. We sort of know who they are as characters, but we don't actually know their names. So I might refer to them as guard at first, and then once we learn their names, I will then refer to them as that. We get Bernardo, speaking of a name. So that's where we're coming in. Uh, we have the lead ghost. So uh, remember, the ghosts in this case are other residents of the sanctuary districts who are preying on other residents. They are opportunists, as it were. But we haven't learnt this ghost's name, even though he is the most prominent voice for the ghosts in the entire episode. He speaks to Bernardo, who is one of the two guards, along with Vin, whose name we last uh, found out was whose name we found out at the end of the last episode. And Bernardo is his uh, colleague, his partner. They often work in a pair, so Bernardo is the other guard. But we hadn't really gotten a name up to this point. It looks like the ghost is going to threaten him, potentially shoot him, uh, and sort of carry out a violent act, perhaps to try and pacify all of the other people that they have taken prisoner in the processing area of the district, which we saw in the previous episode. Cisco calms it down and he's and he's getting straight into this Gabriel Bell role he knows that he needs to keep these hostages alive for everything to reset and the timeline to go back to the way it was so he reminds the ghosts of the value of the hostages don't hurt them Bashir is saying to the ghosts that you know they're just scared leave them alone it's not going to do anything it's not going to win you anything uh, by hurting them so Cisco intervenes and stops Vin the guard, the main guard, the older guard, uh, from being shot there and then. But the lead ghost says he wants his access code so he can log on onto the net. Uh, yep, we're still calling the internet the net in 2024. Or were we ever calling it the net? Uh, I always feel like that was something the the movies and TV shows from the 90s kind of made us think it was going to be called in the future. But as far as I know, we still call it the internet. Some people, I think, call it Safari. <laughs> Some people call it Google, uh, but uh, I don't think anyone calls it the net anymore. But he has a genuinely good reason. He wants to see what they're saying about the hostage takers. And we end the scene at 4 minutes and 42 seconds. 
they've finally been able to access the net and they're on channel news 90 uh which we know from uh you chris brenner uh he is the guy in charge of channel news and uh you know dax didn't know about it but they are watching Channel News, so it must obviously a very successful TV channel, whatever it might be. They're seeing lots of footage of riots, showing the violence that's at play. Uh, the lead ghost seems to think, hey, I bet they're hearing about this in China. Um, but it straight away make you think, well, what exactly are they hearing in China? You know, um, uh, and then the lead ghost does sort of allude to this and saying, you know, why are they surprised that, you know, you've treated people like animals? Of course, you're going to get bit, um, which is very true. And um, it's kind of hard to not watch this scene as they're talking about media coverage and bias and the way things can be reported in certain ways without thinking about the policy of a previous president of the United States who was talking about building a particular wall and who was presiding over an administration that saw fit to imprison children who were trying to make their way into America to seek a better life. And they were taking children away from families. They were putting them in cages. Uh, and you saw quite a lot of social media posts of uh, people, you know, calling them animals, calling them, calling them, uh, you know, monkeys and uh, laughing at them when they were crying. And they, they, you know, these five-year-olds, these six-year-old children who are going through possibly what I can only imagine the worst thing that could possibly go through a child's mind that they, they will never see their families again. They will never see their mother, their father, whoever they came over the border with um, for the sake of where they were born. And um, the ghost's point, I think it, it, it's impossible now to see that line and not think of situations like that. Cisco realizes that things are going to elevate, things are going to get worse. So he needs to sort of outmaneuver the ghosts who at the moment sort of control the processing area where they've taken the hostages. So Cisco takes the gimme leader, Webb, uh, whose name we learnt just at the very end of the last episode, uh, but it's also introduced again here in the second half. Uh, and he brings him to one side and says, look, we need to strategize. I need people I can trust. The gimmies are our best hope. You know, try and get them on. So they try and outmaneuver uh, the ghosts and hope that they're not going to find out. The scene shifts over to Dax, who is watching with Chris Brenner, uh, to find out, you know, uh, are they going to get hurt? Because at this point, they've kind of figured out that, yes, they are going to be in the districts because they would have woken up without IDs, without logos. As they said in the last episode, they would have been taken to the Sentry district. Uh, Dax is watching the riots, and so she thinks that they're going to get hurt. They're, they're caught up in all of this. And um, Chris Brenner sort of says that he has friends in the police. It's, it's almost like a brag. Uh, as I've said before in the last episode, I really don't like this character. And things like this just further uh, my dislike for him. It's the idea that because he's got friends in the police that that somehow makes it okay that they shouldn't act, that they shouldn't try and rescue people because they can pull strings, because they can you know, outmaneuver, they can be underhanded, they can circumvent the, um, the system because they are privileged, because they are better. Um, you know, having friends in the right places. Uh, it's such an anti-Star Trek. Dax is making the right points. She's saying that they don't belong there and that none of the people do. That, you know, she needs to go and see them. You can't just wait for everything to blow over and just hope that your contacts in the police will sort everything out. It's just not only inefficient, but it's immoral to wait. We then end at 8 minutes and 52 seconds. Before we come back, you can actually go back into our podcast to season 2, 
part two, episode two, if you wish, and watch the intervening scene between Kira and O'Brien. But if you don't want to, we're going to come back at 11 minutes and two seconds. The lead ghost is starting to catch on. He sees that there's a lot more gimmies now. They're watching the hostages. Cisco tries to sort of play off the whole manoeuvring, you know, trying to you know, outwit the ghosts and, and get people in charge uh, to say that, you know, oh, well, we need people we can, we need people who can watch the hostages so that we can sleep, you know, uh, and it's, it's quite a fair logistical point. But I think even the ghost is not buying that. He knows what's really going on. The ghost does say that, you know, I've got everything in hand. I know what's going on. Yeah, maybe I can't trust all the ghosts and I can only trust myself. But don't worry, I've got a plan. So there's some poking around and eventually we find out that actually that plan is a little bit self-centered. Uh, he's asking for some money and a flight to Tasmania. Cisco and Webb, of course, laugh this plan off because it's, it's very short-sighted. It's very greedy. It's... Well, you would imagine a typical ghost would probably react as, you know, they are the opportunists in this scenario. Um, so they're, of course, going to ask for the thing that is best uh, and most opportune for them. But uh, the justification is very strange. The character just blurts out that Errol Flynn was born in Tasmania, uh, which is true. I did look this fact up, so it's sort of my history callback, my history shout out. Uh, he was, in fact, born in Tasmania. Errol Flynn was the son of an academic biology professor. Uh, and uh, it's a very interesting fact, but I'm not entirely sure why that was relevant to the plot. Webb shouts him down and says that it, it's this is about an opportunity to be heard, to get past the noise, to get past the political... Um, shenanigans that are going on in the news uh, the way that they're going to report this in the news is their narrative to tell to break the narrative to see that these people are impoverished and they just need a chance however it can get a little bit high-minded uh, they say you know we want them to shut down the sanctuary districts we want them to reinstate the federal employment act uh, the ghost is not having any of it and he's sort of saying oh well, you know throw in a silk shirt or two why don't you um, you know you want jobs there aren't any jobs uh, he's very much of a realist and I kind of see the ghost's point more than Webb's and Cisco's to them they don't know what the future will hold to Cisco this is history of course but imagine if Cisco weren't there if this conversation were going on and it was the real Gabriel Bell and the real Webb they have no idea that that's even a possibility that these districts will close, that the Federal Employment Act will come back. To them, it is a part of a narrative that they cannot accept, the same way that the privileged elites that we saw in the last episode cannot accept that those people need to be in the sanctuary, it's better for them, that sort of thing. They can't look beyond their own narrative. So the ghost effectively is the realist here. Now, it's also going to give me my other historical shout-out, the Federal Employment Act. Now, uh, in America, obviously things work a lot differently to the UK. And as far as I could work out, the uh, only Federal Employment Act and what the writers were kind of suggesting when they wrote this episode in the 90s was that this was in reference to the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 and the Federal Employment Act of 1946. Now, as far as I'm able to work out, again, I'm not a lawyer here, uh, but uh, as far as I can work out, in America, you would take an act that would be that old, 1946, and you amend it. You place addendums onto it, so you adjust the language. But essentially, you take that first act and then you place more um, caveats upon it whereas here 
in the UK, things work slightly differently. Some of that law can be kept and it would be kept uh, ad infinitum. It would just be always there. However, it can be superseded by following acts. And in fact, the most recent Employment Act here in the UK dates back to 1996, around about the time of this episode, uh, as well as the national minimum wage, which came in at 1998, two years later. So it's quite interesting to see the differences between the two countries. Um, I might go into more of this later as we've got some other historical uh, shout outs to to come. Um, But it's quite interesting to me, the idea that in the 90s, they're writing an episode set in the 2020s, referring back to a federal employment act that was already 50 years old at the time the episode aired and would be even older by the time this episode was set. Whereas in the UK, you could realistically see an employment act, um, a piece of legislation being completely torn up and then replaced in total, almost in total, uh, with an entirely new act with new wording and new legislature. There were some interesting things about the U.S. Employment Act that I thought was uh, were, were worth a mention here. The most pertinent paragraph to me was that it was about coordinate and utilize all of its plans and functions and resources to foster and promote free competitive enterprise and the general welfare conditions under which there will be afforded useful employment for those able, willing and seeking to work and to promote maximum employment production and purchasing power. The interesting thing about that Federal Employment Act is that it doesn't say full employment for anyone. It goes some way to saying that that's implied, but it doesn't actually specifically say full employment, which apparently, according to the research I was able to put in, um, was something that was quite contentious at the time. The Liberals, who were pushing through this bill, wanted full employment to be guaranteed by the government. However, the more conservative elements of society wanted to amend it, that it was only affordable to those able to, willing to, uh, actively seeking to, which is a very conservative point of view. Um, It's a narrative that works for them. Uh, They want to push this narrative that, you know, the only bad things for you are about, you know, not pushing yourself hard enough, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and carry on. And uh, it is a a conservative view, unfortunately, that still exists today. Uh, and it, it, given what we know about mental health, given what we know about uh, physical health uh, in some respects, especially in America where there isn't subsidized medical care, it, it would be impossible for some people to hold certain jobs. Uh, so to hold that against them, uh, even though they will be willing and able to seek the employment because they can't, they are not able to, that you would be able to hold that back and that this is a loophole that could lead to something like a sanctuary district as portrayed in Deep Space Nine. But I thought that was very fascinating. Maybe you don't, maybe you can just skip this bit of the podcast, uh, but I thought that was quite interesting that narrative language is being used in this piece of legislation that could directly lead to an episode of Star Trek becoming a reality. We get back on with the episode. Webb says that they're going to find jobs they have to. And I do ask, you know, will they? Um, as I said, the ghost has a very good point. Um, there's no guarantee that they would find jobs. They have no idea that they could possibly find jobs. It does make me think of certain podcasts that I do listen to where, uh, say, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson 
on the uh, Cosmic Queries and Star Talk podcasts, as well as many other science educators I've seen. Um, they talk about the history of jobs and employment. And they also mention how there are jobs that will be five years, 10 years, 15 years from now that we can't even conceive. Um, so there is hope. Uh, if you think uh, in terms of history, uh, back when we were all riding horses, there was the dong farmer, there was the poo farmer who would shovel up all of the manure off the streets. And as cars were put into full production and uh, poo was no longer on the streets, they fell by the wayside and they became unemployed. However, those cars need mechanics. Those cars need petrol. They need garages. They need lots of services that were jobs that were completely inconceivable just 10 years prior. There is a hope throughout history that as soon as a type of job becomes obsolete, another job or set of jobs would arise. And what we know from Star Trek history to come, um, things will arise, things will change. Uh, we may have World War Three looming off in the distance, um, but after that, things will definitely change and there will be certainly a lot of jobs to go around. It's at this point now that we get the strategy from Cisco posing as Bell and saying, look, we need to put a brave face on this. We need to make people see the people inside the districts. Um, we need to make them see them as people. Now, here's the interesting bit. He says, it's not going to be you talking to the ghost, who is a fairly young man, very brash, very arrogant, uh, for obvious reasons. He is the opportunist in the story. Cisco knows that it's a bad call to put him in front of a camera because he would be a loose cannon. He'd be unpredictable. Um, but he says that Webb is the one who should put himself forward. Now, we don't know, uh, even from what Cisco described, that Webb played an important part in the original Bell Riots. Uh, as far as we know, Bell is the one who puts a face on the world and changes things for the better. Webb doesn't really come into it at that point, but Cisco is pushing Webb as the new guy. But here's what I think is interesting. He says they can't dismiss him. He's the guy next door. He's the family man. Now, up to this point, we haven't really seen much of his family. We know that he has a son, Danny, who was mugged and uh, almost left for dead in the previous episode, but we don't see his wife or the rest of his family or any of the other people that he mentions. So it's very odd that Cisco would play on that. You know, he could just be lying that he has a family. He could, and I think this is an interesting story twist and may play into our criteria, uh, be fabricating his family or imagining his family, or perhaps he is suffering mentally and is remembering a family he once had, but has sadly lost. Um, it's an angle to this character that never really gets explored, but I think would have made the episode far darker and possibly better. But that's the overt things that Cisco says. The implied thing, however, knowing modern history, knowing what's going on right now, and remember I am recording this post Black Lives Matter, post everything that's happened uh, since then in, the, in social media. Um, he doesn't say it. But Webb is not black. Webb is not young. He can't be dismissed, Cisco says. Now, Cisco doesn't say black. He doesn't say young. But it's kind of hard to see this rationale without thinking about those things. Cisco, Avery Brooks, is a black actor, a prominent black actor at the time. And he is putting forward a white male as the face 
of a campaign because he's agreeable. He's possibly the best way of breaking the narrative that we saw in the previous episodes because he's white. This could just be me, you know, thinking too much into it, but I kind of find it hard that that wouldn't be part of his rationale. Uh, that wasn't the rationale of the writers of this episode. Violence against black Americans was, you know, just as prevalent then as it is now. Just because we've got cameras, just because we've got hashtags and campaigns doesn't make it more relevant or it was only happening now. It's always happened. So it's impossible to think of this scene and those lines without thinking that there's an implied set of values here. So Webb puts himself out there. He is going to speak for the residents. He starts recording a message saying who they are, what they want. However, the link is cut. Whilst they're shuffling around trying to figure out what's gone wrong, Vin, the older of the two guards, uh, says, you know, you're a bunch of losers. You know, no one cares about you. Of course, they're not going to listen to you. They're just going to cut you off. They're not going to listen. And he's right, you know. Then their narrative, they're not going to listen to him. They're not going to listen to anyone in the Sanctuary Districts right now. As far as they're concerned, these are rioters. These are ungrateful rioters who are destroying their only home. Uh, he also says, uh, check your email, buddy. Uh, now, to him, email would be quite antiquated. I think from the people that I've been speaking to in the 2020s, email is quite outdated then as well you know people have email addresses but i don't see people really saying check your email anymore that doesn't seem to come up in uh, conversation very often now vin is played by dick miller who is an actor i've seen in many many movies and uh, sadly is no longer with us uh, but you know he was born in 1928 he's playing a guard who would have had to have been born in 1958 to be the same age as the actor in the 90s when you know check your email would have been a popular phrase um so to be 40s in the 90s for that phrase to be used it was quite interesting um that he is using a catchphrase that would only make sense to someone of his age we then find out the reason they've been cut off is that detective preston of the san francisco police department has actually cut the call to negotiate so they're going to negotiate off the record they don't want the world seeing this they don't want them showing their face but Webb is very agreeable he says you know we're all angry we want to just talk about it this is where we find out the name of the lead ghost he calls himself BC it's the first time his name is said we then get a negotiation a face-to-face -face negotiation Webb and Cisco playing Bell goes out to speak to Preston and they're just standing on sort of the uh, the threshold of the wall into the sanctuary and the uh, the ramparts uh, between the two lines between the state power and between the people inside the sanctuary they ask for breakfast for 10,000 and <laughs> I don't think that's you know unjustified people are starving and uh, you know there's hostages lives at stake I think 10,000 breakfasts as hard as that might be to find I'm sure there's a few McDonald's or uh, Burger Kings just around there or maybe Burger Land if we go back to our Carpenter Street episode from just two episodes ago I'm sure they can order just enough with a drive-through but as Webb says all they want is a chance to prove themselves we get back to the hostages and Bashir is sort of showing his doctor prowess and I like how you know, it's, that's the kind of cliche is that uh, you you know you're a doctor because um, you can identify being diabetic 
just from a few glances and a couple of touches of a neck. Um, you know, you can figure it out from the symptoms. Uh, obviously, we know quite a lot about Bashir, how good a doctor he is, and for other reasons why he's very good at being a doctor. And um, we know that he's good enough to pull that off. But I like how the people from that time, the, from 2024, know that he's a doctor just from a few simple gestures. But we do get one of my favourite scenes, I think, in the whole episode. Uh, and that's where we talk about the story of how she processed a woman who she knew had a warrant out for her arrest, who was a criminal, but she let her disappear into the sanctuary and she never found out what happened to her. She showed her a kindness. She broke that narrative. She didn't see her as just another criminal who shouldn't be let into the sanctuary. She saw her as a woman who was uh, trying to run away, trying to hide, trying to uh, get away from an awful past and an awful situation even though it meant she would have to go to another situation Bashir tries to empathize with her and says you know it's not your fault things are the way they are uh, but the the lady who processed them she says everybody says that and that nothing ever changes sadly that's true if you don't speak up if you don't mention things if you don't protest in some way even a small way nothing will ever change nothing can ever change until you point out a narrative till you break a narrative till you bust it with whatever means at your disposal preferably non-violent preferably as uh, impactful as you can make it without making any violence but it's true until you say something nothing will change and that's not hyperbole on my part it's not naivety uh, that is history um, nothing has ever changed in history without someone having the wherewithal to break a narrative for good or bad, you have uh, dictators who changed the course of history, your Napoleons of the, of the world, let's say, who changed everything about the society because they saw a way to do it. Um, they stood up and changed everything. Then you have your social rights, just as much as a social rights activist like Dr. Martin Luther King. You have people who were willing to say something and therefore there was a change. It changes to the next day. Uh, Vin tries to make a run for it whilst everyone's asleep, but BC is just about to shoot him as Cisco you know, pulls him outside and uh, gets him away from the situation. Um, Cisco does a big sort of uh, intimidation uh, a tactic. He slams a wall, tries to say, tries to say, you know, go sit down, just stop making things difficult. I'm trying to save everybody here. Uh, Vin is saying, you know, I feel sorry, you know. Uh, is that all you want me to hear? You know, what good would it do? As we've said, just saying sorry can really be a start, which is what Cisco says. It acknowledges a problem and it's you know, the ignorance of that delusion that because you feel that your words won't change anything, that they're not welcome. We end at 23 minutes 46 seconds and please feel free to go back into this podcast's history at season one, part two, episode six as we see another scene with Kira and O'Brien, but we're going to come back at 24 minutes and 39 seconds. Food has arrived, so they clearly got the Burgerland delivery, and uh, Danny arrives, the son of Webb. He seems to be quite quickly recovered, so very, very strange. Bashir now uses the EpiPen uh, to help the lady who processed them, uh, who is suffering from her diabetes, uh, but it's almost hyperspray-ish. 
I know that hypersprays are in development in the 2020s. That's no secret. And I can't, I'm not breaking any temporal directives there. But uh, it seems pretty fast to have rolled out um, contactless, uh, needleless injection EpiPens uh, so quickly within a span of, well, three years from when this episode is going to be let out. Just saying. Bernardo, the other guard, he's looking at a family photo and Vin tries to sort of tell him to to look at it, you know, tries to put a face onto their suffering. Uh, he thinks that he's got a narrative as well. He thinks that the hostage shakers are, you know, just making it all up or don't see that their hostages are people too. When clearly, you know, Bashir, Basisco, Webb, you know, they are clearly on their side. They just want a chance and they've said it loud enough for everyone to hear. But Vin can't break through his narrative. And it's I think it's very interesting that someone even on the inside and sees the district can't get that narrative out of their heads. Bashir tries to reassure them without giving too much away, but gives an almost Edith Keeler-like speech. Uh, if I'm going to go all the way back to my uh, season one, uh, part two episode, but it still doesn't convince them. Detective Preston comes back. She says that the governor of California is not going to say, you know, we're going to shut the districts, but they will offer to reduce their sentence on this offense of taking hostages. And she says the, the glib answer of change takes time, but it's very true. To them, it seems unreasonable. They don't know the future. It always comes back to this idea that Cisco is acting the way he is because he knows what the future is, but Webb doesn't. Webb has no idea what they could possibly uh, reach through all of these negotiations. And this is where I'm also going to pause for a little history throwback. Here in the UK, uh, we had the devastating fire from the uh, improper cladding, fire retardant cladding that was placed on the Grenfell Tower uh, back in June 2017. There are still ongoing investigations into the companies that applied the cladding, uh, the companies that uh, installed the cladding and to the landowners, the, the, the landlords of the, the towers, the tower blocks that are still covered in these things. And there are still hearings going on right up to January 2020, just before the pandemic. Now, of course, the pandemic has slowed that investigation and slowed pretty much everything in the UK at this point. But that's three years. That's three years that the the hearing has been going on. Change takes time. Detective Preston is absolutely right. It perhaps speaks to the naivety, not only of Star Trek, but to this episode, that such a thing would happen so quickly. Now, Cisco doesn't specify a time frame and how quickly the districts are closed, but he does say there is a direct causal relationship between this hostage taking and the closure of the districts. So there is an implication that it will happen very quickly. But, but we have this real example in the Grenfell Tower disaster and the horrible conditions that people were living in in those towers because of the high rents, because of the lack of opportunity for a predominantly black population um, living in those towers. They are kept behind because they don't have the privileges of the best access to education. Um, there isn't the support structure in the uh, surrounding society social welfare, mental health, and so on, um, even with something like the NHS to support them. So there's not medical bills to worry about. There are so many other support structures that just aren't there for the people living in those towers. And you know, 
to have this disaster happen to them and still not have a resolution. Three years on, we still haven't seen a, re a resolution to their plight. And it, it's hard. Again, it comes back to this thing. It's hard not to watch this episode and not think about recent history. We come back to the district and Dax arrives and pops out the sewer. Uh, we see what would be called a dim in the language of this episode uh, following her. He looks very familiar. Suddenly I'm very peckish for Tranya. Hmm. Strange. It's kind of a funny scene after that where we get uh, Bashir and Cisco trying to log back into the system, trying to break the lockout from uh, the SFPD. Uh, and it's Bashir sort of saying, try that menu, you know, try this, try that. Um, it did make me think of uh, all the times I've tried to help uh, members of my family of a certain age, shall we say, try to use a mobile phone. Uh, and it, uh, it just did make me... Uh, Make me chuckle just a little bit. Uh, but of course, that's all over because Dax has been brought in. There's an intervening scene which you kind of feel like should have been there. Like, what actually happened? How did Dax arrive? But Dax was brought in by a dim, as BC says. It did throw up an interesting idea, though. How did Graham Bell break the lockout first time round? Was Webb part of this? Or did something else happen? How did they break in? They're going to break in because, well, they've got Dax now who so far has managed to trick the system into getting credits and IDs, even though she's not only uh, not only human, she's uh, she doesn't belong in that time, uh, but she's managed to trick the system. So we know that she will be a way of getting past the lockout. But it's interesting to think how exactly did Gabriel Bell do it in the original timeline, if there is an original timeline, but we'll come back to that in our ratings criteria. There's a very machoistic kind of scene where BC, the ghost leader, uh, tries to sort of hit on her and he's trying to be um, you know, uh, charming and he, he says that his full name is Biddle Coleridge, which gets a bit of a laugh from Vin, the guard. Uh, Biddle, uh, it's a very odd name, but there we go. But even his come on, which forced as it is, still find less creepy than Chris Brenner. Sorry, just don't like the character. We find out that Dax was able to get in because she was able to recode her ID and she got back past the checkpoints by going through the sewer. But they need her brooch, her badge, her Starfleet comm badge back. So we get a lovely scene here. I mean, it's probably not the most impactful. It's probably not the most uh, hard-hitting of scenes, but it is just a nice little callback scene. We have Clint Howard. We have The Dim, who we saw earlier. Uh, and it's, it's a nice moment to sort of see an old... Trek alum come into Star Trek and have that kind of scene. However, <laughs> it kind of feels like this episode does want to have its cake and eat it a little bit by having this dim character act in such a way that is so outrageous, that is such a perhaps a cliche of uh, mental illness and the way it's portrayed. You know, he talks about your aliens, you know, you're good aliens and I, I'm invisible and other things. And, and yes, there may be people who suffer mental illness who talk that way, but it's so amped up. It's so overdone that it feels a bit odd that in an episode that is calling out dangerous narratives, that it's also got quite a dangerous narrative of its own dealing with mental illness and its portrayal on TV. However, because it is a Clint Howard uh, cameo. I'm going to let it off for this one. <laughs> Dax gets bit to Brinner. They're going to start using his TV connections to break the, the lockouts. Um, Brinner says they're criminals, but Dax is saying, you know, give them a voice, let them say something. Brinner doesn't exactly 
change his mind for the right reasons again. Again, it comes back to this idea from last episode that he doesn't do anything out of the moral necessity of doing it. There is this element of self-interest. He says, oh, I'll lose my license, but I'll get great ratings. Kind of redeems him, but but he's doing the right thing for a wrong reason. You know, he, he He's still got that self-interest. However, I will say that... Uh, We've got uh, TV only for a few more years, Chris Brenner. Sorry, but uh, I think your bubble is about to burst. It's now that we start getting the testimonial scenes. Uh, we get people from the districts coming in, recording their speeches, you know, who they are, what they stood for, what they used to do, what their jobs were. And I like that it's people with high-skilled jobs. It's not just people who were laid off because it's a job that perhaps might be given over to automation and uh, a quicker way of doing it. It's people with highly skilled positions who are living in these districts. Uh, engineers, uh, doctors, things like that. There is one line uttered by one of the, the actors saying that I just want to work like regular people. And it comes back to this narrative idea that even he is institutionalized. He knows it's wrong. And he's saying something against it, but he's institutionalized to, to make himself feel like he's less than normal because he's been placed in this district, even though he is as normal as they get. You know, he is everybody because everybody's going through it. Uh, it's it's interesting to see that the narrative isn't just them and us. There is a narrative within the culture itself, within the districts. But because of these testimonials, uh, things have been amped up and Detective Preston is on a flip cell phone. I mean, I know there's been budget cuts, as was alluded to in the last episode, but uh, wow, no one's got a mobile smart device. Very crazy. But Detective Preston is given the order by the governor to move in with the SWAT teams. And we stop at 36 minutes and 5 seconds. We come back at 37 minutes and 7 seconds. And Kira and O'Brien are back. It's uh, quite nice. I haven't actually seen them since uh, 1967. And they detect the combat. But uh, they stop the automated beam out. But they contact Dax and they get to hold off the auto beam out. And they're waiting for their combadges to sync up with the polarized particles. Hmm. I wonder if I could do that. I might be able to sync up my combadge. <coughs> To the polarized particles in the time bubble. I might be able to get a signal back. We go back to the hostage room, and there's a nice little scene about baseball, and they're talking about the Yankees. Uh, they they won straight sets and so on. I'm afraid I don't know much about baseball, so it's kind of lost on me. But it's quite a sweet moment where we've got Vin, we've got. All of the other hostages, uh, including Bernardo, uh, talking about um, baseball with Cisco. Cisco loves with baseball. We've got this great moment where Bashir just says, you know, I'm more into tennis. I don't really understand what's going on. Uh, but it's an interesting prediction in that they say that the, the Yankees did have a winning streak because they did, in fact, win in 1999 after this episode was aired and went on to have a lot more success afterwards, which would fit what they're talking about. But don't ask me any more because I have no idea what they mean. There is a nice little callback as well to uh, 2015 and Buck Bukai's best year, uh, which is a running gag and reference throughout a lot of Star Trek now. We get the National Guard units moving in. They break through the barricade at the doors. Uh, Danny leaves just in time to go and see Webb's family. And they sort of talk about his wife and 
Danny's mother. But again, we don't see them. Do they actually exist? Is this some mental illness playing through Webb that actually it was a delusion all the time? I kind of wished we'd got a bit more definitive answers on this, that maybe we would have seen the family. Uh, we would have got to see them and put a face to this family. Uh, but we never do. Uh, BC says, you know, it's probably raining in Tasmania ever anyway. He's kind of bought into the the narrative that Cisco has now placed, that uh, Bell now stands for. There's a big explosion. National Guard run, run in, and they're using some sort of pulse rifle technology. Uh, it's not like your average machine gun. I don't know my weapons very well, but I don't think that in 2024 we had that kind of pulse rifle technology. But hey, um, maybe I'm just mistaken. Who knows? Unfortunately, BC is killed. Webb is shot and killed. And Bell is shot, but not killed. The dust settles, and Vin, the security guard, is standing over Cisco, who is shot and down on the floor. At this point, again, thinking about recent history and Black Lives Matter, it did seem a bit odd that the black guy was the last one to be shot. Maybe the police have learnt their lesson, and they just knew who to go for, that Webb had become the target because he was the face of the resistance, the, the uprising, uh, and that they were targeting Webb specifically. But uh, there was an, if there was ever one part of this episode that was unrealistic, it's that Bell was shot and not killed. Just saying. But Finn has now witnessed for himself the violence at hand. The, the narrative is broken for him. Uh, literally broken, because they have bushed in the door. Vin now escorts Bell, Cisco, um, as who's sort of clutching to um, a blooded rag as uh, both Bashir and Cisco leave. Vin says, how can we let this happen? And they just say the most important thing is to not let it ever happen again. Vin comes up with the idea of switching IDs so that it makes it look like there are dead bodies, so that Bell died in the riots, as he was always supposed to. However, not exactly as he was supposed to, because which dead bodies is he going to place on? Who was Bell, actually? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. Whoever that ID goes on to, they become Bell in the history books. That picture becomes Bell. It would not be Cisco. It would not be the actual Bell. It would be this other person. That has changed history. But we'll come to that in our ratings criteria. Tell people the truth, Cisco says. And we end at 43 minutes and 25 seconds. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, a lot of episode to go through and there is a lot that I could have talked about, but just simply, I don't want to bore you too much. <laughs> but I simply have waffled on too much. I love this episode. It's There's no way I'm going to rank against it. But we are going to do our ratings criteria. We have done L. We have located the time in 2024. But what about the rest of the criteria? Now, of course, I'm going to be talking about our previous week's episode as well as this episode in my ratings. But continuity. Did anything happen in this episode and the last episode that would have affected continuity. Now, of course, Cisco has the mission. He knows that Gabriel Bell has died and he needs to take his place to reset the time. The act of doing that has changed history because let's say, for example, that Cisco had been killed, pretended to be Bell, and this had changed the face of all of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, that he died back in 2024. It always meant to be that way. And in the history books, Bell's face is Cisco's face. Cisco would have noticed. He would have learned in school, but he didn't. So clearly, Bell 
had the face of the real Belle from the first episode. So something has changed. Time has changed. So because of that, continuity-wise, no matter what happens after that fact, the moment that Cisco has decided to adopt the hero persona, he has changed history. So I am saying that from this point on, there is a separate timeline. There is the original timeline where Bell did not die, and there is this separate timeline, which presumably will be the rest of Deep Space Nine after this point, where Cisco became Gabriel Bell. So for continuity, there is definitely an impact, and there doesn't seem to be any suggestion of a time loop or a predestination paradox. Alterations. Now, as I said or alluded to about Webb, there's a lot of mention about a family that we just simply don't see. It's odd that they didn't explore that angle. Uh, it kind of makes sense in the fact they've got two episodes to do what is already a very heavy episode. They've already talked about so much, so much relevant uh, topics. Even uh, at the time the episode was being aired, the amount of unemployment and homelessness that was on the streets of LA, that was throughout California, and indeed all of America. This episode was so on point then, and it's still on point now, that to really suggest any alterations, it, it would seem superfluous. It, it really wouldn't add anything to the story. However, saying that, knowing we had this thread about his family, I think it would have added a, a, another layer, perhaps another context, perhaps another truth about the idea that people suffer mental illness and we don't necessarily notice. Uh, given that all the narratives are about not noticing people in pain, to have had Webb um, have a, if not a fictitious, but he would have had a family that he then lost but hasn't actually let go of, that he still thinks he's married, he still has a wife, that Danny and uh, his mother is still alive somewhere, but it actually turns out that Danny tells us she's been dead for you know so many years and that he's just been playing along with it i think that would have had also another impact that cisco didn't notice that bashir didn't notice that someone was suffering and it was the fact that they didn't even ask they didn't find out for me story-wise i think it would have just added an extra layer that even the high and mighty starfleet officers missed something that they didn't even ask the right questions, that you should always be asking the right questions, um, even if it's simply just how are you and uh, inquiring about somebody's day, that that can go a long way to changing something for the better. So if I were to expand or alter, that's probably the alterations I would do. I would probably, even though it's, it's nice to see him, take out the scene with Clint Howard, perhaps replace that scene with the scene with Webb and we find out about his family and his circumstances at least um, just because the Clint Howard scene could be seen as disrespectful to those suffering with mental illness. Recommendations are in our criteria is recommendations and there are three strands as always. Recommending to Star Trek fans there is no way I'm going to say no. <laughs> Past tense is and always will be part of my top 10 Star Trek of all time. It's certainly one of the best if not the best of D Deep Space Nine's offerings overall and you can't watch this without thinking about not only modern history, the, the noughties, the 90s, you know, all of the 20th century, any time where there's been suffering, which is all history. <laughs> you can't escape it. And this episode is so impactful now, and it always has been. And unfortunately, it probably always will be. There is no way I'm not going to recommend this to Star Trek fans, to non-Star Trek fans. It hits home in so many different ways that 
people might see it as naive, as typically Star Trek, oh, you just have to talk about the problem to solve it. But given what we know about mental illness, social problems, social injustice, we know the impact that someone standing up for the right thing can do. Um, recent history, the storming of the Capitol Hill building um, in America post the election, um, we saw Eugene Goodman, the the security guard, you know, just doing his job uh, and going beyond his job in some respects, staring down uh, a group of protesters who were intimidating him the whole way through, leading them through the halls. Um, you know, that is not only his job because he is a guard, but he went above and beyond to stand there, um, not only as a man, but as a black man in the face of white supremacists. It's, it's a strength in just simple action. And this episode just shows that simple actions are sometimes the best actions. So to non-Star Trek fans, I can't not recommend it either. <laughs> um, to the godlike entities, uh, where does this place in all of Star Trek? I've shown my hand already, but there's no way we're getting rid of this. Not only because it is socially important and brings up a lot of issues, but time-wise, we have just started a new timeline. There is continuity that may come from this episode that may impact us in the future. So there is no denying the importance of this episode, not just in subject, but in continuity. And that's it. All that remains is for me to set up the next episode. So join me next time as we go to Voyager, one small step at zero minutes and zero seconds. As always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at rider underscore coattail, or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free. There's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.